0: Hey, friends, I'm Christine Chapel, and you're listening to the Hope and Help podcast from IBCD, where we host biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. In this episode, I chat with Sharon Betters and Susan Hunt about their book, Aging with Grace, Flourishing in an Anti-Aging Culture. For more help on the topics we discussed today, visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help, where you can access notes from today's episode and browse related resources from our digital library. Before we get started, let me introduce you to my two guests. Sharon Betters is a mother, grandmother, great grandmother, pastor's wife, and co-founder of Mark Inc. Ministries, where she is the director of resource development. Sharon is also the author of several books, including Treasures of Encouragement and Treasures in Darkness, and is the writer of Daily Treasure, an online devotional. Susan Hunt is the widow of Pastor Jean Hunt, a mother, a grandmother, and the former director of women's ministries for the Presbyterian Church in America. Susan has written over 20 books, including Spiritual Mothering, the Titus II Model for Women Mentoring Women. Hey there, Sharon and Susan. Thank you both so much for joining me for the show today. Thank you for having us, Christine. It's a privilege. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> I am so excited to have this conversation with both of you. Uh, it's just such a treat, and I was just gushing in kind of our pre-interview conversation about how much your book, Aging with Grace, Flourishing in an Anti-Aging Culture, has just ministered to me personally, and so I can't wait to dive into this discussion. But before we get started, I would love to invite each of you to spend a few minutes sharing about why you wanted to write a book on what it looks like to flourish as an aging. Christian woman in an anti-aging culture. So Sharon, would you lead us out with uh, just some of the reasons why you wanted to write on this topic, and then we'll have Susan follow you after? Yes. Uh, well, my story
1: starts back when I was 21, and, and I'm much older now, but my husband was actually a Christian, had been a Christian for a year, and I was pastoring a church, if you can believe that. And because my Pastor's wife always taught a women's Bible study. I thought that was my job. And so here I am, 21 years old, and we're in a tiny city church filled with, well, elderly people. And I announced I was doing a Bible study, and five women attended that Bible study every week. They sat at my dining room table, and they were all very old. Um, And they came and they let me cut my teeth on them. Uh, I don't know who I thought I was. But they loved me. They, they brought me roses um, when they found out I loved roses and lilies of the valley, big bouquets of lilies of the valley. And if you've ever picked lilies of the valley, you know what that takes to put together a big bouquet. They just were so encouraging to me. But in that same church were some elderly women who were not so encouraging. And um, So compared to these life-giving women who came to the Bible study were women who now I think were life takers. They were bitter. They were very critical of my young husband rather than being encouragers. And I knew then I had a choice in front of me that I was uh, really at a crossroads at 21. What kind of an old lady was I going to be? I wanted to be like those five life-giving women who sat around my, my table every, every week and encouraged me. So I tucked it away, kind of tucked it away, but I knew that I couldn't wait till I was old to become a gracious, uh, godly woman, that I needed to start making choices then I- in my 20s. And then when I was 45 years old, our 16-year-old son Mark and his friend Kelly were in a fatal car accident. And I felt as though that was a culmination uh, of that thought back in the tw- when I was 20, 21. What kind of an old lady would I be? Uh, I was faced with a choice. Would I become bitter? Would I become known as that? Uh, A woman who never got over the death of her son? Or was there something better? And I saw in the scriptures there was something better. And we, Susan and I, um, both uh, have realized that we're not alone in our quest for this, that young people, this book is not just for older women, it's for
2: young women. And I think Susan can speak to that better than me. I think for both of us, it really has been Such a process, really a lifelong process. I was in my late 40s when I became coordinator for women's ministry for our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America. And at that time, there were no resources for women's ministry. And we were really trying to find what is it that women in God's church are to be and do. And so as the staff person, I was tasked with exploring that. And I landed on Titus 2, and we had a, a committee of advisory women who would come in and meet with me, and, and not too long after we began, Sharon became a part of that committee. But we all became captivated with the gospel mandate in Titus 2 that older women are to train younger women, are to teach and train younger women. And... As we thought about what does that mean, we really began looking at it in the context, first of all, of the chapter, which begins with the pastor to teach sound doctrine, so it's to happen in the context of um, sitting under sound preaching. But then older women are to teach, which refers to content, teaching the gospel, and train, which refers to showing. We're to teach the content of the gospel in the context of relationships that show what it looks like to live out the gospel. And so we began to realize that really this Titus 2 mandate is the Great Commission made gender specific. So it began to get bigger and bigger in, in our eyes as to what we were called to do. And we realized, too, that it, it actually went back to the Old Testament, where we're told over and over and over that one generation— is to tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. So as time went on, as we formulated this, we sort of built it around the shape of that we're to equip women to think biblically and to live covenantally, to think God's thoughts, teach them to think based on the authority of what God's word says, but also to show them what it looks like to live out the gospel in our relationships. So then fast forward about 30 years and about 75 by that time, and I was asked to speak at a Revive Our Hearts conference on the topic of aging. And soon after that, I was talking with Sharon and found that she was going to be speaking on the same topic. And I actually attended the conference where she spoke on aging. And the thing that surprised both of us about that was that not only did older women come but the room was packed with younger women and their response was overwhelming to us they really seemed to want to know and to at least it was almost as if they wanted a picture of what should it look like for me to age what what should I be aiming for and so Sharon and I began talking and praying, and this is bigger than what we were really thinking about. And by that time I'm realizing that I'm pushing 80 and I'm feeling old. Before I didn't feel old, but now I was beginning to feel old. And so we were asking ourselves the question, what will it mean to glorify God as older women? And we landed primarily on the promise in Psalm 92, The latter part of that psalm, it climaxes with these words. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like the cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. And I'd read that for years. But at this point, it really Captured my heart in much the same way that Titus too had captured my heart and invaded my life 30 years before. So then we began thinking, how are we supposed to steward what we're learning? We were learning so much and we were so excited about God's promise that we really can flourish even in old age. And so we realized. That be good stewards of this. We needed to to write it. I think we can both say we learned far more than we teach. It was such a wonderful adventure for us, and we really saw it as another layer of Titus too. Now we're to really equip women. We we've reached the age where we can call back to them and tell them the beauty and the wonder and the joy. Of Aging with Grace. So because of that, we really want it to be a book that hopefully older and younger women study together. And so we have written a leader's guide. You can find that at agingwithgrace.online as well as other resources.
0: And I would just second that, that you said you hope that, you know, older women and younger women will go through this book together. And I will just say as a 30, almost 38 year old mother, married mother, this book has just so ministered to my soul. This as a younger woman, knowing that, you know, Lord willing, I will be able to reach an older age and and be able to apply just the various pieces of biblical wisdom you share in this book and see God even working through the highs and the lows of life, right? Because you guys both are so transparent in this book to share. You know, this wasn't always easy. (laughs) You know, there was a lot of really, really hard, sorrowful, painful parts of the sanctification process, even just the process of living life in a broken world with sin and evil and death and mourning. And so I'm just so thankful that the Lord brought you two together to put and and co-labor on this book because it, as a younger woman, has spoken to. Me, and I hope that more women will will take the time to get it and go through it. And so I think this conversation will definitely leave them. Well, hopefully that's my goal is to leave them wanting more to go get the book and to sit under the teaching, really, because both of you guys really are taking God's word and taking women into it, but then also applying it to everyday life and, and what it means to live before God as a woman who is is aging in an anti-aging culture. So uh, let's maybe provide some definitions here. Sharon, you write in the book that nowhere does God diminish the value of the elderly. I loved that statement. And I thought it was really remarkable, especially in the light of the anti aging culture that we live in. So before we continue on talking about this topic, can you offer us some insights as to what the Bible has to say about aging? I would like to piggyback on really what you
1: just said and what Susan said, and that is from a biblical worldview We go with thinking biblically to living biblically or living covenantally. And the scriptures, of course, model that for us. We see in the scriptures multiple verses about uh, God's view of aging and elderly people. In Job 12.12, we read, wisdom belongs to the aged. And of course, in this culture, older people are sometimes definitely diminished and even made fun of. And Job 32.7 says, those who are older should speak, for wisdom comes with age. And so, thinking biblically, I I think that's one thing we say over and over again: is what do the scriptures teach about all of life, but in particular about aging? So that's our starting point. That's what the scriptures teach: that God elevates aging people. And Psalm ninety two is a, is you know the passage where we camped out, where God promises we will flourish, we will bear fruit, but then we also see in scripture that he shows us what that looks like. So Moses, how old was Moses when God called him? He was in his eighties. Abraham was 75 when God chose him, when God said, you belong to me. But in our book, we talk about elderly women who show us what value God places on older people. You think about the birth narrative of Jesus, and what do we see there? We see at least three, possibly four, elderly primary characters here. We see Elizabeth and her husband, and Luke is so funny. He says three times they were very old. Elizabeth was very old. And then Anna, he talks about how old she is. She was either, when we meet her, she's 84 or over 100, depending on you know, where you land with her her history. And repeatedly through scriptures, we see older people in places of leadership. We have the thinking biblically, which we encourage and I have preached to myself every day. What does the Bible say about this? You know, when I feel discouraged or my abilities are diminishing or what is my purpose? What does the Bible say? And so that I would say to your listeners, that is our starting point. But what does the Bible display in what that looks like? And it's packed. The scriptures are packed. And so in our book, we have Thinking Biblically. Uh, Susan writes about Psalm 92. She unpacks it beautifully in Psalm 71. And then I write about four different women in scripture who exemplify, who model what she is talking about. And I'm saying I wrote those chapters, but Susan's fingerprints are all over them. So we had a lot of fun with that.
0: Yeah, you guys both, the Lord really lets you guys tag team off of each other. The chapters ended up just weaving together so beautifully. And so, yeah, it was just a real treat to read. Well, Susan, you write, quote, often when a woman retires from her vocation or after her children leave the home, she feels useless. Can you talk to us about why that is and explain what Jesus Christ has to offer a woman who is struggling with a sense of purposelessness? Yes, thank you for that
2: question. When that happens to us, it's because we put our identity and our purpose into what we are doing. And so often, even among Christian women, we sort of unconsciously drift into that. And what it means is that then when my children grow up and leave the home, if my identity and my purpose has been in mothering, then I'm going to feel at a loss and I'm going to try to hold on to them. I don't want them to leave and all of that sets in. But scripture gives us an overarching purpose and identity. We are God's image bearers. He created us in his image, meaning that we're created to live in relationship with him and to reflect his glory. And that's our purpose. Our identity is where his image bears us. Our purpose is that we're to reflect his glory. So, what does that mean? When Moses asked, Show me your glory, God said, I will show you my goodness. And then God hid him in the cleft of the rock and passed by and proclaimed or explained his goodness, his graciousness, his compassion, his loving kindness and mercy and forgiveness. The attributes of God are the character of God are the essence of his glory. We read in John that when the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. What did we behold in Jesus? We behold the character of God. And so when we glorify God, that means that we reflect His character. And the more we live face-to-face with Him, the more we are enabled and empowered to reflect His glory. When I am settled in the fact that my roles and my secondary callings will change. But my overarching calling is to glorify God in all of life. That transcends everything. So Jesus offers us an eternal identity and calling and purpose. I once had a young woman ask me, was it not egotistical of God to create us for his glory? And that's a very good and thoughtful question. And I think it's one that at some level, we all ask, I had never been asked that question at the time, and I just said, Lord, help. And he did. But then it occurred to me, what other purpose could we have that would give us significance? If I'm created for my glory, that's destructive. But yet, if I'm created for God's glory, that's life-giving. It's eternal. It's amazing. I can actually reflect the character of the God of love and mercy and goodness and truth and beauty. I think we need to be sure that we're discipling women to understand that our purpose is God's glory. And every other purpose is an extension of that. I'm to reflect his glory as a mother or as a wife, as a daughter, as a single woman, for me right now it means I'm learning to reflect God's glory in a very new place. My my beloved husband went to heaven 14 months ago. And so learning to glorify God as a widow is a new place for me. But it's it's an exciting thing to think. These are not wasted years. I have the privilege of understanding what it means to reflect God in this new place. And his faithfulness to me has been so amazing. So it comes down to understanding that our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins,
0: Susan, I'm so thankful that you unpacked that the way that you did because when I was reading your book, it actually came at a time where I have been struggling with some very minor eye issues—just so some blurriness and soreness—and and I've had to go to the doctor. And thankfully, I've I've got you know s- some new glasses and then taking some steps to try to uh, provide some relief and take care of my eyes. But when I was reading your book, even though this is a very you know minor Thing now, it caused me to reflect and say, you know, one day my eyesight might be taken away and I won't be able to do the things I do now, like write or pop. I mean, maybe I could learn, you know, through other tools how to do those things, but the way that I do them today, if I would be able to learn a new way to type on a computer or to produce online broadcasting and things, it would look a lot different. And so I had to really sit and think, well, what would that mean for me? I mean, would I get cast down into despair because the things I enjoy to do are are stripped away because my body begins to deteriorate? And I was just comforted by, again, what you've written about the purpose being to glorify God. And the thought immediately came up. I think it was just the comfort of the Holy Spirit saying, "Well, if that happens, you're just gonna find a new way to glorify God with your with your life, you know, And so that really gave me a sense of, oh okay. Well, I can do that, you know, and so instead of just thinking about how crippling and of course, I don't want to pretend like there wouldn't be grief in losing that, but just there's hope. And I think that's the difference is when we live for our own glory, you know, the glory of Christine being able to write or do the things I enjoy doing in ministry today at the age 37. If I live for that, well, then yeah, when it's taken away, how crushing you know, that is, but if, if like you say, and the word tells us that our purpose is to glorify God, that's something that I can do when I'm bedridden. You know, that's something that I can do as I'm taking my last breaths and just glorifying God by resting in his grace and the righteousness of his son and all that he has done for me that I don't, it's not, based on my works and what I'm able to do that bring Him glory. Even in those moments, I can rest secure in Him. And so thank you again, just for that reflection. It was really a comfort to me as I was wrestling again with some just minor physical issues. Well, Sharon, I want to have you talk a little bit more about your story. I just want to thank you too, for for sharing about it in the book. And you you write about a season of life when within a six-month span you and your husband Chuck were unexpectedly alone. You had a child going to college, a child graduating college, one getting married, and then like you mentioned before, your youngest son Mark died in a fatal car accident. And you say there was a particular question proposed by Mary Winslow that caught your attention in this time. And that question was, how are you traveling heavenward can you talk to us about what this question meant for you in this season of grief and loss and then maybe even share how the scriptures encourage us to think about this concept of traveling heavenward as we age
1: yes mary winslow i i discovered her in a book called heaven opened where her son octavius winslow had compiled her writings and there were letters that she had written um many, many letters before the internet. So Mary was coming to America with her children and she had a whole bunch of kids and her husband was going to join her later and they were going to build a whole new life there. But instead, when she arrived, her youngest child died and she learned that her husband had also died. So here she is in a new country by herself, raising a whole family. And she said that it was a terrible time for her. She went into a terrible depression, did not know how she was going to survive. And then God moved in her life and brought her back to a place of peace, and she says that even though it was a horrible place, it was a sweet place because that's where she met Jesus in an even more intimate way. And so her ministry, one of her ministries was to write notes to people and encourage them. And one of the notes she wrote was to a widow. And in that note, she asked her, how are you traveling heavenward? And that just grabbed my own imagination because I felt as though I was in a, a situation not as horrific, maybe, but for me it was as horrific as Mary experienced. I was in a foreign land of grief. I needed a map. I I needed somebody to guide me. I didn't know the language. I wasn't sure how I was supposed to carry that grief, express that grief. And here is this question: How are you traveling heavenward? And it caught me because I I knew that as a child of God, as a daughter of the King, that was my ultimate destination. Of course, when Mark died, I wanted it to be that day. Every day I would get up and say, this is a good day, Lord, to take me home or to come. So heaven was my destination. And asking that question of how am I traveling there as a child of God? What is my priority? What as Susan has talked about, what is um, my purpose in glorifying him? How am I going to glorify him in this journey? Mary was 45. I was 45 when we lost Mark. And so the scriptures, you ask about what do the scriptures teach us about heaven? And of course, Paul, over and over again, he, he, he declares he's on his way home. He's on his way to heaven. And he talks about getting there. And he says, you know, our tents are going to fade away and they remind us we don't belong here. So every time we have an ache and pain, I think my body is telling me I don't belong here. I'm on my way home. Uh, when I feel as though the losses are more than I can bear, I'm on my way home. Paul says these are momentary troubles that we have. He acknowledges their troubles you know, he acknowledges that there's a place for grief, but they're reminding us that they are leading us to a better place. And so I like what you said, Christine, when you talked about your eyesight, that you would know, you know, if there are other losses that you would know that even in the spite of those losses, you can glorify God, but there's also a place for grief and there is a place for sorrow. And we don't want anyone listening to think that we have a Pollyanna view of aging. We know it's tough. It's hard. For some, it's harder than what we have experienced. Much, much harder. We know this. But we have to keep going back to what the scriptures teach. What do we believe about it? And as children of God, we are on our way home. And so in the morning, when I'm struggling to to be that uh, woman who's reflecting the character of God that Susan mentioned, asking that question, how am I traveling heavenward? What am I reflecting to those around me? How am I demonstrating Jesus to those around me? So, I love Mary Winslow. I can't wait to meet her in heaven.
0: I have to be honest. I just also, a few weeks ago, I posted on Facebook because I was looking for some quotes to use in a book that I'm working on from women who have, you know, gone before us, you know, uh, who have women in the faith who maybe have written letters, like you say, looking back over the landscape of their life. And they are just, Pleading and testifying to God's new morning mercies—that His faithfulness is is never ceasing—that He walked me through my whole life, and you can trust Him to walk you through your whole life, every ache and pain. And so, that being said, somebody t- recommended. Mary Winslow for me to check out Mary Winslow. And the only thing that I could find online was another book which was compiled of letters, I think from her her son Octavius called Life in Jesus. And so then to read this book a few days later and see that you were quoting Mary Winslow, I thought it was just such a a, such a fun thing because I I definitely want to get the book that you recommend because the other one seems a little bit like it's out of print or hard to get. So I'm gonna explore that for sure. And you Even just, Sharon, what you were talking about brought to mind a story. I'm not even really a story, but there's just a part that Susan shared really early on in the book where she was talking about damaging some muscles in her neck and jaw that was causing severe headaches. And she says that she spent many days laying in a dark room, sometimes wondering what it would mean to age with grace if I never got better. So just going on, Susan, Sharon, what you were talking about of aging is hard. And and, and no part of this book is trying to deny that experience. But I love this, the modeling that Susan does in this book. She says that, Lord, what does it mean to flourish and be fruitful right now when I do not feel like doing anything? And you say that as you reflected on Psalm 92, you prayed that he would make you glad. And some days you fought fears and fatigue, but began to realize I was not afraid. I was content. And I knew Jesus was with me. And you, Susan, go to say, this is not wasted time. It's growing time because my physical weakness and pain pushed me to trust Jesus more. And so just as you were talking, again, the way that both of your perspectives weave together in this book is so almost seamless, to be honest with you. And that's been really encouraging for me to read through and, and get to glean from. Now, Susan, there is a particular chapter where you write about what it means to flourish and be fruitful in old age. You write, quote, as counterintuitive as it sounds, flourishing is a slow and progressive death that brings abundant life. Can you explain what you mean by that statement and help us gain some perspective about what it means to flourish and be fruitful in our older years? Fruitfulness is
2: a dominant theme in Scripture when you think about it. From the beginning, the first man and woman were told to be fruitful and multiply. The Great Commission tells us to make disciples, which is being fruitful and multiplying spiritually. We're told to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So this is just a dominant theme throughout. And then when we come to John 12, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So that sounds contradictory. If it dies, it bears much fruit. But Jesus here was talking about his death and resurrection. And the death had to come in order for the resurrection to come. And this is the, the pattern for the Christian life. As we die to self, we live to Christ. We must decrease and he must increase. This is not about doing more. It's about becoming more and more like Jesus. This is the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of repentance, the fruit of... Of righteousness. It's about the life of Christ flourishing in us. And I think Psalm 92 is so pivotal in this because whereas it concludes with this promise of flourishing, it's almost as if the entire Psalm is leading up to showing us what it's going to look like and what is involved in this. Now, this flourishing is the work of God's Spirit in us. It is a tree does not plant itself. It is planted by the gardener. God sovereignly determines the time and place in history where we will live. He plants us in his house. It is in his house where we flourish and bear fruit. It's interesting that this psalm is titled a psalm for the Sabbath. So it was a communal song. The congregation sang it Sunday after Sunday as they gathered for corporate worship. So I think we see in this that the place for flourishing is in within the context of the covenant community. It is as we gather together in worship and in, in covenant life as we weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice. All of those dynamics of covenant life help us. To flourish as we see others flourish I just imagine the psalm being sung in a congregation where they're little children and when they read about the elderly who will flourish they look around them and they see elderly who are flourishing, and so it builds that vision of what this can look like within their hearts and minds but in the opening verses of Psalm 92 the first thing we see is the importance, the God-centeredness of the psalmist. He says, it is good to give thanks to the Lord, and that's the Hebrew Yahweh, which is God's personal name of covenant faithfulness. And then he goes on to sing praises to your name, O Most High, reminding us of God's transcendent glory. And isn't this really how Jesus taught us to pray? Our Father, that personal name of covenant intimacy, who art in heaven, that he's his transcendent glory. So the first thing in flourishing is knowing God. And that's a a knowledge of him that grows and grows. And I love looking back over a lifetime. At 81, I have a long view of life. And I can look back and see how my knowledge of God grew through the study of his word, through corporate worship, through life experiences. But all of this is just telling us to put ourselves in the way of grace, to put ourselves in the place where there are the means of grace. There's scripture and prayer and worship, the sacraments and fellowship. And so then the psalmist says that it is good to give thanks. So gratitude is a good thing. It's good because it's right and it's good for our souls. But we have to be careful that we don't make this a work by saying, okay, I'm going to start thanking God for 10 things every morning. But no, it's praying that God, by the transforming power of his spirit, will give me a heart that is filled with gratitude. And then the psalmist goes on to say, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. His steadfast love and faithfulness, this is the gospel. So we're to declare the gospel to ourselves and to others all through the day. And as we do so, we remember the gospel. We remember the power of the gospel, the wonder and the beauty of the gospel. So as we pray for a grateful heart and for a gospel-centered heart, and then the psalmist says, for you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. We think of gladness as dependent on circumstances and people, but the psalmist is telling us that gladness comes from God. He makes us glad. As we were studying this, and I had been studying it, and just living in it for, I guess, a year as we were writing the book and when my husband was hospitalized. And this continued to be the pattern of my prayer life. Lord, help me remember who you are. Remind me daily who you are, that you are my Father, and you are the transcendent Lord of glory. You are in sovereign control of everything going on in our lives right now. Father, give me a grateful heart. Even as I'm watching my my husband decline, give me a grateful heart and enable us both to flourish even in this time and give me a glad heart. That seemed almost ridiculous to pray. How can I have a glad heart as I'm watching my husband die? Amazing as it is, God answered that prayer. And he gave me a heart of gladness. He caused me to begin to focus on where Gene was going, what he was going to be experiencing, the full joy and gladness of our salvation when we see our Savior face to face. And at the moment he took his last breath, I was flooded with that gladness for what he was experiencing. And so, this is what flourishing is it's in the dailyness. In the life and in the death of life, we actually can flourish because we know God better. It's just such a beautiful thing.
0: Absolutely. And just you even sharing just now reminded me of a quote you you shared in the book. You say that the repetition of declaring the gospel to ourselves gradually becomes the melody of our soul. And I think what you just explained right there is exactly how the Lord, through his spirit, made the gospel the melody of your soul, even in The face of death and grief and loss. And so thank you so much for for sharing just a little bit of a peek as to what that looks like in real life. You know, as you said, how can this be that I can have a glad heart in Christ while I'm watching the love of my life perish? And I'm just really, again, thankful for the perspective you offer and just pointing us back to the sufficiency of the gospel to to enable us to have that perspective, even when um, life is is hard and it hurts with what we're going through, Christine. Let me add one thing that what you and Sharon both have
2: said about grief is so true. What I learned through this, I was grieving, but I was also joyful, and I thought, how can that be? I, I began to think of how Peter tells us we grieve, but not as those without hope, and uh, that is so true. We grieve. In the context of hope. And we also grieve in the context of a joy that transcends our grief. And so the grief is real. Learning to live alone is real, but it's in the context of a joy and a peace that is immeasurably more than anything I could ever have imagined. I I go through my day praying from Psalm 21 make me glad with the joy of your presence and he does
0: i love elizabeth elliot uh, in her book suffering is never for nothing she talks about the terrible truths of life lived you know, this side of heaven in this world full of curse and sin and death and brokenness. And so that we have those, the realities of grief, like we're talking about, there's the the real hurts, the real pains, the real loss, the real sorrow, and those real tears, right? The real heartbreak. And those are the terrible truths of, of living in a fallen world under the curse. But then we have the wonderful facts, right? So it's like we are holding one in one hand and one in the other. We've got terrible truths. And yes, we're acknowledging that they're there. But then we also have the wonderful facts of the gospel, which offer us another perspective. They offer us another kingdom to live for. They offer us another hope, a realistic hope to look to. And so I think that in this book, even I'm seeing echoes of of that contrast where, yes, we're acknowledging the hard realities of aging and, and all of that comes with it. But yes, there are wonderful facts that give us perspective in Christ so that we look at those terrible truths in the context, like you said, Susan, of hope. And I think that is just so important. And that is a perspective that I personally, walking with the Lord for the short amount of time that I have, I'm starting to see that become the melody of my soul, the the reflex of my heart when something goes wrong in life. Now, I'm not saying that's perfect all the time, but I'm starting to see what you guys have testified to in this book, is that he really does do that for us. As we continue to renew our minds by his word, the power of the spirit really does enable us to have that perspective of hope and gladness, even in the midst of our pain. And Sharon, I love that immediately after Susan wrote that chapter about thinking biblically on flourishing and fruitfulness as we age, you dive into again, what we're talking about, what it looks like in the face of really hard, hard situations like family estrangement, grief, Loneliness, widowhood, and helplessness. You say that sometimes, as women get to this particular season of life, they feel like it's just too late. God's not going to do anything else in my life. He can't work through me. I'm, I, there's too much mess. Um, I, I'm done. And so, is there a particular narrative in the scriptures that offers hope for women who find themselves wrestling with those
1: type of thoughts? Well, one of the women we talk about uh, in the book is Naomi. And I think she's just the perfect woman to go to if we could sit at her feet and have her tell us her story. But of course, we have her story in scripture. And Naomi would be one of those women, I think, who would look back and say, I think we made some mistakes along the way. Her husband decided that they needed to leave Bethlehem when God sent a famine. God sent a famine to discipline the Israelites to turn their hearts back toward him. And similar to what Abraham did, concluded God could not feed them in a famine. And so he took his family to Moab. We don't know if Naomi was a part of that decision or not. But here she is in Moab, which is a godless, horrible, idol-worshipping people who knew nothing about the God of Abraham. And so here she is. She has two sons and raises them in this environment. And they marry two Gentile women. We don't know how Naomi felt about it, because we don't know how long she was there and absorbed the culture. But then if you know Naomi's story, you know that terrible things happened. Her husband died, and then her sons died. And here she is a widow. And the word for widow, uh, the Hebrew word, means no voice. In that culture, she had no voice. And so what could she do? She had been planted by the Lord in, as one of his people, and yet she was not with her people. So she hears that there is food once more in Bethlehem. And we can see that spark of hope, just a tiny spark, where she decides to go back home. And so I would say to the woman who is really struggling with feeling purposeless Uh, feeling as though it's too late, too many mistakes, too many broken relationships. The first step is to go back home. Remember where God has planted you and go back to the word and go back to the community where he has planted you. She goes back and she's transparent. And I love that she laments transparently. She taught me how to lament. Naomi taught me how to wrestle and how to wrestle to reconcile God's love with his sovereignty, because she seems hopeless. You know, God has forsaken me, but she prays for God to bless her daughters-in-law. So there's still something in her that believes in God's sovereignty. So she believes God's sovereignty, because God, she says, God brought me back empty. I'm, I'm empty now. But she also, I think, in her story, we can see she knows that he loves her. There's something wrapped around it that she doesn't understand. And so you can look at we don't have time to really dig more into her story. I hope you get the book and read about her, but here is a woman where she must have thought it's impossible. My life is over. There's nothing left for me. I just need to pick up the crumbs and hopefully I will have enough food to eat or maybe the people here will will take care of me. But I don't think she was thinking that God was going to do something incredible in her old age. And yet he does. He 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 does something no one could have expected. And now down through the ages, we go to Naomi and learn from her. I remember when we lost our son, Mark, and I had just joined the National Women's Ministry Committee. It was Susan. Susan was our leader. And I was in my 40s and I thought, I can't do this job. I don't know what to do. I don't have the energy for it. And I told Susan this, I needed to come off the committee. And never forget her saying to me, you are teaching us how to grieve. And that's your job right now. And ladies, that might be, I think that's what Naomi's job was for me. She taught me how to grieve in a way that turned my heart toward Jesus, that God did not reject her in her transparency. And so I, you know, I would say that to you, like Susan talked about, we have a whole history of life that we can look back on. And some of us We look back and we see God's faithfulness. You may be looking back on your life and seeing all the broken places. And yet that's a story to tell to the next generation. That's a story to tell to your grandchildren and and to be transparent and to say, these are the choices I made. And they weren't good choices. These are the consequences. And yet God was faithful to me um, throughout my life. Uh, It's possible, I think, that this is a season of uh, looking at regrets. Do you have regrets in your life? Have you been holding on to grudges? Are you bitter because you feel that someone has hurt you deeply and you just can't let it go? This is a season of life for you to say, that's not where I'm going to be headed. I'm going back home to the house of the Lord. I'm going back home to his people, to his word to prayer, as Susan said, praying for that grateful heart, that gladness of heart. And as you do, he will show you how to reflect his glory and his character.
0: That's so good. Again, just that question, how are you traveling heavenward? Uh, I think is is this a really neat thing to reflect on and you know Susan you offer some really helpful reflection questions Sharon just said a few I thought that were really really great but you dive into things that you personally share in conversations with younger women that help them to think through a biblical perspective on what's going on in their lives do you mind briefly explaining what those questions are yes and it it, you don't have to
2: necessarily say them in this way, but I think if we p- follow this pattern in helping women to think about, am I thinking biblically and am I living covenantally? Am I living out my relationship with the Lord in my relationship with others? But the questions are to just ask a woman, what is your reference point as you evaluate this situation or this relationship that you're telling me about? where are you starting? Is it with God's glory or with your glory? And then what is your authority? Is it the Bible or is it your feelings? And these questions help women to center back on hopefully what they know, or if it's what they don't know, then it will help them to begin to think about those things. And then the next one is, What will it mean for you to submit to God's authority and glorify him as a life giver? Now that term life giver comes from back in Genesis after the fall of the man and the woman. And God comes in Genesis 315 and proclaims the gospel. He gives the first promise of a savior that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And in response to that, Adam Looks at his wife and he names her Eve, which sounds like the Hebrew word life giver. So here is our redemptive calling. As women, we have unique capacities to give life, of course, biologically, but it extends beyond that because the life of Christ is in us. We have the potential to be life givers in our relationships and situations. And we will be either life givers or life takers. And those words are so descriptive. We know what it's talking about. We know what that means. We know when we are being a life taker. But it's such a freeing thing to realize I'm not stuck there. By God's grace, by the power of his spirit working in me, I can flourish. I can be a life giver as I repent, Each time I'm a life taker, and as I ask God to give me the power, give me the desire for his life to flow out of me to others. The next one is, are you willing to repent of any ways you're being a life taker? That's the pathway back from being a life taker to being a life giver. And now that we need to face, what what is it going to cost me to die to self? It means giving up my resentments, my expectations, my disappointments, my holding on to a grudge. But all of those are life-taking, not just to those around us, but they suck the life out of us. And yet when we give up those things for the wonder and the beauty of letting the life of Christ shine out of us, we gain more of him. So those are the questions, and maybe they'll help you as you with and disciple even your own children.
0: Yeah, I thought those were really helpful questions to reflect on, especially too. You know, IBCD, we are passionate about equipping the local church for one another care and discipleship. And these are discipleship questions. They can actually even be counseling questions in the context of a dialogue between a counselor and a counselee. So just thank you for offering those in your book. And if you didn't take notes and the <laughs> the more conversations I have on this podcast, the more I realize I need to come up with some kind of a page for people to take notes on the conversations because the guests that we have on the show, God has just tremendously blessed us to have such wisdom shared in these conversations that God, you just wanna, you just wanna write them down and then to be able to use them. So if you're not a note taker, Get a copy of the book. Those questions that Susan just shared are in the book for you. Well, we are just about out of time today for our conversation, but I do want to invite both of you to do something that I ask every guest of the Hope and Help podcast to do, which is to speak directly to the audience. Sharon, I'll have you go first. Now, there may be someone listening to this episode who feels like aging with grace is... Maybe impossible for her. What would you say to this woman to encourage her with the hope and help of the gospel?
1: Well, I, I think the first place to start is what is your relationship to Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Uh, have you experienced forgiveness? Have you experienced his love? And have you experienced repentance in your own heart? And so start there. Second, I would say that you can learn a lot in a group setting with older and younger women. Find a place where older and younger women gather to talk about the scriptures. And in fact, we wrote Aging with Grace with small group studies in mind, where we just picture the Titus 2 passage coming to life with older and younger women teaching one another. And so you you could be 20 and think that Aging with Grace is impossible. Or you could be 80 and think it's over for you. But in a setting where women can help one another learn, your heart will be open to opportunities you may not have thought about. Secondly, I would like to revisit when we talked about how are you traveling heavenward? And I love what Susan said about it's not a to-do list. It's not adding more things to our action items, our action file, but it's about the praying for God to continue to give us a glad heart, to give us a grateful heart. The struggles that we have, those hard places that we have, they are opportunities to grow deeper into the heart of God to fall more in love with Jesus, to learn more about him. After the death of our son, Mark, um, when I struggled so much to reconcile God's love with his sovereignty, the one thing I knew was not going to change was God's word. And so that's where I planted myself in God's word, even though sometimes I could not remember what I read. It was just black marks on a page. I knew that God's word had truth and it was medicine for my soul. And so I don't know if, if you're a journal, if you like to journal, um, get a journal, write out in your journal, your feelings, how uh, hopeless you feel about the season of life uh, as a prayer and then read scripture. Uh, the book of John, where you can see how Jesus uh, met with people and loved people and talked with people. Uh, Read a good devotional, uh, My Atmos for His Highest or Streams in the Desert, I highly recommend, and spend that time with him and trust that his word is living and his word can
2: transform those hopeless places into places of life. Amen to everything that Sharon said. I just love the way she expresses all of that. And just remember, we're so forgetful. We're so forgetful. Just remember God. Remember his promises. Remember his power. Think about the cross where he shows us his eternal, abounding love for us. And think about the resurrection where we see his power to overcome sin and death. We're helpless. What is impossible for you is not impossible for God. From 2 Corinthians 12, where we're told, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Those are my final words, the power of
0: Christ. It's so wonderful, ladies. Thank you so much for sharing those encouragements. I feel like I I wish that this conversation could go on for hours just so I could continue to learn and glean from you both. But unfortunately, we do have to wrap it up. So I want to let the audience know, if you are interested in learning more and even purchasing a copy of Susan and Sharon's book, Aging with Grace, Flourishing in an Anti Aging Culture. You can click on the link in the show notes. That will take you to a page on the IBCD website where you can access a link to purchase the book and also to connect with Sharon and Susan's other works. Now, that would be a great time then for me to say, if there is someone, we'll do um, Sharon, if there's someone listening who wants to get connected with you and your ministry, the resources that you have available, where can they find you online? Well, there are two places that I would
1: recommend, agingwithgrace.online, which focuses on the book. We also include information about the Leader's Guide. We have lots of bonus material. We have videos, five-minute videos with women who are older than 70 that we ask questions about aging, a lot of free perks that are at agingwithgrace.online. And then markinc.org, M-A-R-K-I-N-C.org is the organization that... My husband and I started after the death of our son, Mark, and her vision is to offer help and hope, especially to hurting people. And it's packed with many, many free resources, uh, redemption stories. There's so much there. And I you can reach me personally through either one of those, agingwithgrace.online or markinc.org.
0: Susan, do you have any other places that you would refer people to for your works? Yes,
2: in addition to Aging with Grace.online, you can go to PCA Women's Ministry and there too are many resources that you can find, not only from me, but from many other women.
0: Wonderful. Well, again, thank you both so much for joining me for the podcast today. This was a really encouraging conversation. I cannot recommend this book highly enough. And so again, thank you both for joining me. And I just pray that that women will be stirred up by this conversation to get a copy and, and just learn what it is to think biblically and live covenantally as they age, as they grow up into Christ in this life. So thank you both so much for joining me today. Thank you, Christine. Thank you so much. Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode. If you enjoyed today's conversation, why not subscribe to the podcast? That way you'll be notified when new episodes release. Also, please don't keep the hope and help podcast a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it.